This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about reducing violence, and I'll be speaking with Drew Wing, the director of Boys to Men. Boys to Men is a local nonprofit group here in Portland, Maine, that seeks to reduce violence by fostering the healthy development of boys. Boys to Men offers leadership training for boys and girls in high schools designed to help teens recognize messages in the media and the larger culture about gender and violence and to help support bystanders to intervene effectively. Prior to doing this work, Drew was the Director of Business Development for Zakow Construction. Welcome to Safe Space, Drew Wing. Thanks, Sam. Glad to be here. So tell me more. What, what is Boys to Men? Well, Boys to Men started about 12 years ago as a community coalition. Our founder, Lane Gregory, got together with other community leaders, education professionals, um, professionals working in, within the field of family violence prevention, and looked at it and said, you know, if we're really going to move the needle on ending violence, we need to engage boys and we need to engage men because 90%, over 90% of the violence in the world is perpetrated by men. So... At that time, that was a fairly cutting-edge concept. Now more and more people are talking about engaging boys and engaging men. But back at the time, to say we're going to come at violence prevention by engaging boys and men, that was pretty cutting-edge. Right. I mean, it seems like for a while it was really part of the women's movement, and it was more like helping women be through assertiveness training, model mugging. That's Domestic right. Violence that's shelters. right. All the work that's um, taken place previously really has taken place on the shoulders of women and coming out of the women's movement. And it's not been until recently that men have really been invited into the work and came come into the work um, to work with women. And so your focus is on boys and men, and how do you do that? How do you seek to engage them? Well. A philosophical underpinning of boys to men is that although we, we can look around and see the violence in the world and we can see that, that men are often at the center of that and we can look at a number of problems that are facing boys emotionally, academically, and we acknowledge all of that and we, and we know that we need to hold men accountable for, for those problems. At the same time, we don't believe that boys or men are broken. Rather, it's a culture that's defining masculinity in terms of violent sexual conquest and often just stupidity that is the problem and that needs to be challenged. It's interesting when you say defining masculinity in terms of stupidity. I think of the book by Lynn Michael Brown and her partner at Colby where mm -hmm. they talk about the sort of slacker culture as if being like a cool boy was to be a slacker and like not try hard in school. And that's, and that's a part of it as well. Part yeah. of you know what what we're defining as masculinity. So part of what you're trying to do to prevent violence is to really change the culture of how we understand what it is to be masculine. Right? And that means that we don't work just with boys; that we work with the spheres of influence within a boy's life. So we work with parents, we work with educators and coaches, and we work with the peers, and of course, boys themselves. But we come at it kind of from a holistic, systematic approach, saying that this is a culture change we're looking to make not fix boys. So we're not pathologizing boys. They are not the problem. In fact, you, one could argue that they suffer from these limiting stereotypes more than anyone. I mean, a, a big focus, obviously our big focus is male violence and male violence against women. Um, but the other side of that is that boys and men really suffer as a result of the stereotypes that define masculinity, as we've talked about as well. 
So I understand one of the main programs that you offer is called RSVP, Reducing Sexism and Violence Program. So I'd love to hear about uh, what you do, what that is, and you know, and how you try to, to prevent violence through RSVP. Okay, this is a really exciting program. It uses bystander intervention as, as our model. And we recruit student leaders. We usually recruit 40 student leaders, both male and female, from within a high school population, from diverse groups within that as student leaders. And we take them away on a two-day retreat um, and then two follow-up days of training at the high school. And they get trained in value clarification and practical scenarios that is going to help them be be leaders within their peer group standing up against sexist language, sexist behaviors, and violence. Okay, so let's just backtrack for a second. So when you say it's a bystander intervention program, what is bystander intervention? So bystander intervention is the idea that we all have a role to play in stopping violence, that we see, we witness things, we hear things, that if we are willing to stand up and confront people or challenge people or intervene, we could change situations oftentimes before they become dangerous. So what I, what I know that is true for me and I think maybe for many is I think we all imagine that we would do that. If I witnessed something bad going down, I would step in and do something. Hmm. But what I have come to learn is that, in fact, in many instances of violence, often very public violence, no one dares step in. And I know there's some very famous cases in history. I wonder if you could just tell a little bit about what we know about bystanders and what makes it hard to intervene. Well, I mean, I think the classic bystander case is that the more the more people that witness the situation, the less likely it is that somebody's going to intervene. And that's where a lot of the bystander re- research kind of originated out of. And so. Why don't you tell me that story? So that story goes back to um, a story back in, I think, the early 1970s, um, maybe late 1960s, of Kitty Genovese. And she was assaulted in New York City when there were a number of bystanders that witnessed her being assaulted, heard her being assaulted, and didn't do anything about it. Some lights came on, perpetrator who assaulted her ran into the shadows, but then came back um, several minutes later because he later told the police he really didn't believe anybody was going to do anything. Well, he assaulted, he assaulted Kitty again on the steps of her apartment and killed her at that point. So this was kind of the landmark case that created a lot of the research around bystander intervention, why people didn't intervene, why they didn't call the police, what happened. And how do you understand that? So this idea that the more people are that witness it, the less likely anyone is to do something. Why is that? Because they think somebody else is going to do it. And then is there also this culture like if no one's doing it, then no one kind of dares to be the one to step forward? That's all. That that's absolutely right. So the other piece of it is, is well, everybody must think this is okay. So do I want to be the person that says this isn't okay? Either that, or is does everyone else think it's too dangerous to step in? Like I'm too at risk if I step in. These are all elements of it. So yeah. the the questions you're asking are all the questions that an individual asks when they're thinking about whether they should intervene or not. Is this my business? Should I care about it? Is this person still going to be my friend if I intervene? Am I going to get hurt? Is this dangerous? Right. So, okay, so here you are. You're on this retreat. You've got all these teen leaders, boys and girls from the high school, and this is the kind of discussion that you're having with them? Yeah, we have real discussions. I mean, we have to get – I mean, we get through the – 
uh, you know, as I said, the values clarification is one piece of it. So helping them get a better understanding of their own thinking on what's okay and what's not okay. Where do they think they should intervene? Where do they think they shouldn't? And then once we hopefully help them gain some clarity there is, okay, practically, how do I do this? What are the obstacles? When I see this going on, how am I going to feel? And then what can I actually do? And are there very specific things that you encourage them to do? We encourage them to think. We encourage them to always be aware of the situation, to be to be aware of the risk associated with intervening, but that there's almost always something that can be done. So a lot of times, particularly for guys, their idea of intervening is flying in like a superhero and, you know, throwing down with somebody else. Of course, there's all kinds of other ways to intervene, and the earlier that people think about intervening, usually the less volatile the situation is. So maybe rather than waiting until something's at a violent stage, somebody can intervene when the first comments are made. So, you know, that might be even by, like, stepping in and asking a question. Absolutely. Or asking the woman if she wants a ride home or she needs an escort or, like, some kind of... Yeah. Just interrupting the flow of it. Yeah. Or pulling your friend away from a situation, pulling your friend away from a situation where it looks like he might get in a fight before it actually gets there. So part of the effective bystander training is teaching them how to intervene earlier before those situations get so volatile. Are there any other tips we should know other than act early? It takes courage. And the reason we go through practical scenarios with the students is because we know that when they get there, there are all these questions that come up. So thinking and making decisions early on about how you want to be and how you want to show up when you see these situations is important. Part of what strikes me about the way that you're thinking about this is, so instead of taking boys, sort of only the boys out and saying, you know, don't be bad, effectively, don't grow up and be a violent man, you're already relating to all the boys and the girls as bystanders, so you're treating everybody as innocent and assuming that they want to do good. Right. seems already like such a better way to engage somebody. And the other piece of having the boys and the girls together is that oftentimes this is the first opportunity that boys have to hear from their friends who are girls about their experience in their daily lives. So we do a exercise called sexual assault in the daily routine, and we say to the boys, what do you need to do to avoid being sexually assaulted in your daily life? And we write the responses up on the paper, and the responses from the boys are almost always none. If they respond at all, it's, well, I have to avoid going to jail if I want to avoid being sexually assaulted. When we ask the same question to the girls, we quickly fill up a full poster-sized sheet of paper with all the things that they do. I look where I park. I'm, I'm, I act like I'm talking on my phone. I'm concerned about where I'm, about what I'm wearing. I you carry know, my keys between my fingers. That's right. I tell someone what time I'm going to be home. It goes on and on. All of these things. And the boys, every time we do this exercise, I, I watch like their jaw drop. And it's the first time they realize that the people these girls that they care about and are friends with are having a completely different experience. And they feel there's a sense of guilt and shame around it. It's kind of heartbreaking to realize that someone you care about has to live with that kind of fear. It is. And and they respond to that and they want to become part of the change then. So part of what I hear you saying is you've found a very effective way to evoke their empathy. 
so that they're identifying at some level with these, like they're getting it through the girl's eyes, and suddenly they really care about it. And the girls are getting something through the boys' eyes, too, because we also do a exercise called a gender box exercise where they see how all the stereotypes that define boys are limiting and hurtful to them, too. So the girls also learn something from the They're learning from each other. So there's a couple of key components to this program. One is establishing empathy. That's a foundational aspect of the program. The other part is critical thinking. So empathy partnered with critical thinking and then practical st- skills for intervening. So I want to come back to the critical thinking piece uh, because is that tied into kind of what I've heard referred to as media literacy? I mean, is that like helping people observe the messages that they're getting from the culture and start questioning them? That's absolutely right. So what would be an example, say, of a, of a cultural message that people hear all the time that fosters <laughs> this kind of violent aspect of the culture that we may just not even notice? Is there, do, you, do you have a, an example of something like that? Well, I think the the most, you know, the prevailing thing that we see in the media is the sexualization of girls and women. And and that plays it that plays itself out in boys and men starting to think about girls and women in one way, and that's in a sexual um objective in, in a way of objectifying them. And so that's a piece that we really start to challenge is although that's a piece uh, that's a piece of life where Boys are often interested in girls, and girls are often interested in boys, and people like to be viewed, and people like to view. There's much more to girls and women than just that. And so part of that is just showing this one way of depicting girls that the media does so well and everything else that they leave out. So when boys start to see girls only as objects, that starts to change the way they relate to girls. And... There's a sense of being able to or being entitled to relate to them as objects rather than as full people. I see. So in a way, what I hear you saying is it's not that feeling attracted or thinking of someone in a sexual way in itself is the problem. It's the absence of everything else. It's the absence of seeing a woman as you know someone smart or as a potential boss or as someone with like enormous creative ideas or someone to take seriously. That's the, it's the absence of that that's the problem. It's just one one piece of the media literacy, and it's just a, it's a it's a it's a big piece. So I bring that up, but there's there's many other pieces as well. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Drew Wing about Boys to Men, a violence prevention initiative here in Portland, Maine. I want to return now to Drew Wing, executive director of Boys to Men. We've been talking about violence prevention. You've talked a lot about uh, this, the culture of masculinity and how it supports violence. And I'd love to hear you say more. What is the culture of masculinity? You said it had to do with feeling stupidity, with sexual conquest. Say more about how you, how you see the culture and, and why it's so destructive. These are narrow, narrowly defined stereotypes of what it means to be a man or what it means to be masculine. And... And it's pervasive. And when we start doing media literacy and we start going through the media and showing the clips, the videos that that our children are watching, um, the magazines, and you put it together, it it's a narrative. And it's a narrative about how we see ourselves and how we live our lives. And when you sit back, step back and really look at that, you have to acknowledge the way that it's depicting men 
And the way it's depicting men is not in a healthy way, where violence is a tool for getting what we want, where women are objects, and where slacking or not putting your best foot forward is cool. I mean, these are just a few of the messages that you see relative to boys and men in the media. It's really defining our masculinity. And so if I was a boy growing up and I was sort of handed this on a plate, as like who I was supposed to be to be desirable, who I was supposed to be to feel good about myself in the world, how do you want to question that without sort of robbing me of something that actually really is important to me in terms of masculinity? Well, it's not that a lot of the things that we see about masculinity aren't some of those are very good things. The problem becomes is when anybody wants to step out of some of those stereotypical masculine traits, and they're quickly pushed back into that box and say, no, you can't be that. In fact, you're told you're like a sissy or a fag or some other. That's universe. right. I want to have deep relationships with my male friends. You know, I'm a young boy, and I, you know, I have a lot of affection for my male friends. And that can last up to a certain point, at which point then I'm called gay or I'm called a fag, you know. I don't want to fight because I don't like to fight. I don't, you know, and so I'm not tough enough. So there's a lot of pressure put on guys to go into these kind of stereotypical traits. And most guys don't really want to take all of that on. So when you talk about wanting to engage boys and to engage men, what are some of the challenges in doing that? Well, engaging boys, I mean, boys are much more receptive to all of this. I mean, our youth have a keen sense of justice. They have a keen sense of challenging the rules and the mores. And when we start to show them how the media conglomerates are kind of like pulling the wool over everybody's eyes and defining our lives in a way that we don't necessarily want to, they get outraged. And so tapping into their sense of empathy and then their sense of justice and their just general disdain for authority sometimes it's easier to engage the youth. But when we talk about engaging men, when we talk about really getting men to step up and be role models for boys and to call other men out, that's more challenging work, much more challenging. You know, it brings to mind, of course, the recent story with Joe Paterno, mm -hmm. you know, who was as, as highly valued a male role model as I can think of in, some, in the sort of sports world. Mm -hmm. And the, the feeling that although he, what I understand is that he did report the sexual assault, uh, he, that he didn't really finally step up enough to see that that ended. And um, is that the kind of thing that you're wanting to challenge men to step up even more? That's a great case of where a number of people didn't step up at the level where they needed to to protect an innocent child and how a culture of masculinity or protecting something was more important than doing what was right. And so this work is a lot about teaching young people to be leaders and doing what is really difficult to do. But some of the other challenges with engaging men, I mean, I think the first thing is, is there's so many men that don't realize that, you know, violence against women is a problem. And that's one of the first things that we need to do is just create more awareness of the issue. So it's hard for me to understand that. <laughs> yeah. How, how would a person not know that violence against women was a problem? It's invisible in a lot of ways. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. I mean, we're talking about it on this show right now. And in Maine, it's recently got a lot more attention. But it often takes place in the shadows and people don't talk about it. Or they think it happens in a different community other than theirs. And they don't fully acknowledge that it's usually male violence against women as well. 
So they think it's a smaller problem than it is in some ways. That's right. I think that many people might imagine that violence prevention might include something like helping people with better conflict resolution skills, you know, how to talk out a disagreement better. And But you're not really, you're, I understand that's not where your energies are focused, and I'm curious to ask how come. It's, I think, pretty well documented and established now that violence follows, uh, domestic violence in particular follows a, a pattern, and that pattern is one of somebody who thinks that they have the right to control somebody else, and they systematically do that. Or even in the case of if not looking at domestic violence but looking at sexual assault, which we're also talking about, is that they have the right to take what they want, to do what they want, because somehow they're superior or they're entitled to it. So that's really, in some ways, when we talk about a culture of masculinity that's problematic, those two words, superior and entitled, seem like really at the heart of it, and control, entitled to control someone else. And that's why the engagement of men is so challenging, because when we get to the root of it, it requires all men to look really deeply at who we are and how we're behaving and the beliefs that we hold and that's a painful process that shakes kind of the foundations of our existence. And, and it's a process that takes time. So given that it really is such hard work and does rock the foundation, how do you do it? I mean, how do you actually re- reach across that difficulty and connect with men? Yeah. Well, I think one piece of that is, is recognizing that using shame is probably not the way to do it. That again, just as we connect with the younger boys around empathy, that that's a good place to start with men. So to ask them the question, to get them thinking about the whim- a woman in their life that they care about, that they love the most, their daughter, their partner, their mother, their grandmother, their niece. Every man has some woman in their life that they care about. And when we can start off by talking to them about that woman and having them vision how they want that person treated or not treated, then we connect to men and we connect in their heart. This isn't something where we can shame them into it. It's not something where we can make an intellectual argument and have them understand it. We have to have them understand it from their heart. And that's where I think they begin to want to do the work. So really what you're saying is it's love that motivates them. I think so. What are, what are some other challenges? What are some other obstacles that make it hard for you to engage men in doing this violence prevention work? Well, I think even once men have that kind of heart connection, once they're motivated by love and they want to be better men, there's this feeling of I'm not good enough or can I, can I really affect change? And so when we talk about bystander intervention or calling our peers out or our coworkers out or our our teammates out there's this i think there's often this sense of holdback by men because they say well i'm not perfect or you know i'm not sure that i can do this as well as what i'm telling other people to do it or do i still hold these sexist attitudes of my own and so that oftentimes holds I think, men back from getting started. So we have to give men permission to be in process, not be at a place of arrival to start. That makes so much sense. I mean, I think about parallels to anti-racist work. It's like we all grow up with these attitudes. Racism is so internalized. And if we had to wait till we were perfect to do anything, we would all be, like, silenced and 
That's right. We'd be silent forever, living kind of in this glass house phenomena. We don't want to say anything because we live in this glass house ourselves. Or we're scared that we'll expose our own sexism or racism and be called out on it and shamed. That's right. So given these, these are the challenges, why is it important to engage men? Well, it's important on a couple of different levels, and we all have something to gain by it. The first piece is, if the violence that's perpetrated in the world is only perpetrated by 15% or so of the men, then that means that there's 85% of men that could do something about it. And if 85% of the men in the world said, we're not going to tolerate this, that we're going to create laws that don't allow it to happen, that we're going to call people out on it, it wouldn't happen. It would stop or it would be drastically decreased. But in that same process of liberating women from the fear of violence, men somehow are liberated as well also. Because men, the other side of this is that men, those 85% of men, are also living in some ways lives that aren't fully theirs, that are again defined by this culture of masculinity that doesn't allow for their full expression of emotion, that doesn't allow boys and men to develop some of the friendships that are so important to health, and the other things that make them who they really want to be. So the full liberation of men, of the full liberation of women ultimately means the full liberation of us all. And that's why it's so important. Not a more personal level, what is it that makes you inspired to do this work? Fundamental for me is the fact that I have both a son who's eight and a daughter who's 11. And everything that we do to boys to men, I think, affects me and how I show up as a father. And I hope is going to have an effect on the world that they're both going to experience. Is I want my son to be feel free to be his authentic self and be the person that he wants to be and and be a leader and, and show up in a certain way. And likewise, I want the same for my daughter. And I want, I want her to be safe and I want her to have full opportunity and full access to the same things that my son has. Drew Wing, thank you so much. On that note, I want to thank you for being my guest here at Safe Space. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Drewing is the executive director of Boys to Men, a local nonprofit here in Portland, Maine, devoted to preventing violence through fostering the healthy development of boys. I want to give my thanks tonight to Jen Hodson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or if you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can also download the show from the iTunes store through podcasts. You can email subscribe at safespaceradio.com to get a weekly announcement with a link to the show, and you can also like us on Facebook.